0: Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join your hosts, Wesley Carter and Rob Bartlett, in their mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all.
1: Welcome to the Amplify Your Process Safety Podcast. I'm joined again with Blaine Hoffman. Blaine, welcome to the podcast.
2: Wes, it's a pleasure to be with you again for another episode. Always, always great to have you.
1: You know, and so Blaine, we've done a, we've done a few episodes now. I can't believe it on the podcast. You know, you have your own, you know, for anyone who's, you know, our listeners who've listened to any episodes previously, they've uh, understood that, you know, while, you know, I focus on process safety, you focus more on the occupational health and safety side. Um, You have your own podcast, the Safety Pro Podcast. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So I started that in 2014 and you know, I did uh, almost 10 years of consulting. And one thing that I discovered was that, you know, I I traveled a lot. And so I did a lot of remote work and uh, some site work for my clients. But, you know, at the time, I had just discovered podcasting probably, you know, end of 2012 into 2013. It was still a young industry at that time. And, I had asked several of my clients, some of my uh, points of contact at my client sites. You know, hey, have you have you listened to any podcasts? Uh, what do you watch YouTube or anything like that? And a few of them said they had. So I asked uh, others, hey, if there were a podcast where you know I talk about some of these things that we're working on, would that be of interest to you? And uh, overwhelmingly, uh, folks said that would be great. Uh, I don't think we have anything like that, so. I kind of got that idea started as a way to, at first, uh, supplement the work that I was doing. So I started down the path of actually looking for a private podcast, a way to have a private RSS feed that only my clients would have access to as part of the work I would do with them. And then, of course, it just snowballed from there. And I decided, well, I could uh, use this. And, of course... Uh, all things start with a with an initial plan or idea, and it, it evolves from there. But I initially used it as, you know, a way to sort of market, you know, safety, you know, in the services that I did. And I quickly realized that there was much more value in not just saying, hey, you know, this, this is something that I can help you with and talk a little bit about it. I switched uh, quickly uh, to, as a matter of fact, you can't find any of those early episodes that I did because I I took them down. I just went to, you know, this is a podcast about workplace safety. We talk about things that you can act on right now. It's not a lot of the theory and theoretical stuff. The tagline is no guru speak, right? No sage talk, just actionable advice that you can implement now in your facilities. And so I stuck with uh, general industry and I talk about some health topics, the safety and health aspect. And I also get into uh, every once in a while, I get into professional development for safety professionals, but you know, really it's a balance of the technical safety stuff and the professional development. And I've stuck with that ever since, Um, like I said, 2014, and we've been going solid uh, up to this point. We have a pretty good following, and you know, that's how we met. I've met many other professionals that I still am in contact with today as a result of that. So, yeah, the early days were, were pretty exciting. And a pack, you know, podcasting has blown up since, and it's a, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. So, uh, you know, that it's exciting to have been a part of that medium for this long.
1: Oh, it, and you were, I, I think, you know, this when I reached out to you when we were, you know, at amplify um, process safety thinking about starting a podcast and you were like, to me, the gold standard, the inspiration, right? That's why I reached out to you. I was like, Hey man, I really, I'm a fan of the show. Uh, you know, I want to do something like that in process safety.
2: And for the listening audience, you were kind of like my, my mentor um, for that and no, getting us started. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. But you and Rob, man, you do a, a fantastic job. And I know Joe um, on the uh, production side, helping put it all together, uh, you have a great team there. And that certainly helps. But yeah, you're, this, this production you've got going is fantastic.
1: Yeah. We're, our, uh, our manager, Joe, um, keeps, uh, keeps us in line. Um, she's fantastic. So, oh yeah. So today, um, today's topic for the audience was we were going to talk about something that sees quite the overlap in both process safety and you know general industry, and that's uh, contractor management. Um, so for the listening audience, um, some some take, key takeaways from today: what does the regulation say with regards to contractor management? Why is contractor management found in both general OSHA requirements and PSM or in general industry, and why is it important? You know, so those are the three key takeaways. So. Um, the first thing here, and you know, Blaine, you know, what does
2: regulation say,
1: or why, you know, contractor management, why is that important?
2: Well, uh, we'll start with the regulations for general industry for us outside of PSM sites, and it's very vague. Contractor management, you're not really going to find if you were to say, okay, show me the 1910 standard that gives me everything I need to know on how to deal with contractors at my site that I have come in and work in my facility, you're not going to find a whole lot of anything, okay? OSHA, however, they have a, an internal instruction that they use to determine which company to issue a citation, uh, you know, if they find some kind of violation that involves multiple employers. So if they go to a, a work site, and there's multiple contractors or multiple employers, and there's a hazard uh, that is, you know, something they could cite. They go through a um, what they call the multi-employer worksite citation policy. Uh, they follow to determine who gets the citation, and it's, it could be more than one employer as well. Uh, you have the uh, controlling employer, you, and uh, we can kind of get into some of the definitions, but there's four categories, right? The controlling employer, the creating employer, the uh, correcting employer and the exposing employer. So if you're a contractor and you're at a site and you're doing some work and that manufacturing site has a hazard, uh, a recognized hazard, and you allow your employees to be exposed to it, even though you didn't create the hazard, the contractor could be cited uh, as an exposing employer and OSHA could cite for the same uh, hazard could cite the host employer, right, the contract or the uh, the manufacturing employer as the creating employer, or even if they allowed the contractor to do something uh, that was uh, un- deemed, quote unquote, unsafe, right, a recognized hazard, the uh, controlling employer not controlling the contractor. So that's sort of where we get our guidance, right? If we look at that citation policy, employers can set up a program of their own to help mitigate and control those different types of categories and stop that from happening. But other than that, uh, I have a, a really good uh, resource page that we can get into, you know, as we as we discuss this, uh, we can get into some best practices for the general industry side. I got you.
1: Yeah. So the I guess when you, you know, the way you put that, you know, about, you know, it, it puts it puts some ownership on this is my site, my hazard. And also I'm providing a contractor. These are, this is my employee is the contractor and they show up and I also have some responsibility to protect them from that hazard. So it kind of, it kind of puts, it sounds like a little bit of, you know, ownership on both parties. And I think when you look at the PSM regulation um, with respect to contractors, um, they've got some pretty clear expectations. And I think it kind of goes in line with what, you know, generally what you said, Um, you know, so, Ocean 1910 119 paragraph H is contractors, and they have a, a you know an initial definition of where it applies because there's some. Sometimes you don't want to apply these requirements to certain you know types of contractors. So it says this applies to contractors performing maintenance or repair, turnaround, major innovation, or specialty work on or adjacent to a covered process. This is a PSM location. It does not apply, and this is where it's important, to contractors providing incidental services which do not influence process safety, such as janitors food and drink services laundry delivery or other supplies that makes pretty good sense you know you got this psm location you got a cafeteria and you know someone's delivering cokes um you know sodas whatever you want to call them i don't what do you call it up there in ohio pop
2: what what do you <laughs> i don't even know i know what i call i know what i call okay. it and um it's it's hotly contested it it's soda it's soda okay it's for me yeah
1: <laughs> i know i'm in texas and everyone calls it coke no matter what you know you're drinking the dr pepper and it's like hey do you have any cokes? Uh, You know, it is what it is, but yeah, so that makes good sense. Um, but so if you do meet this, you know, you meet the definition of someone who's doing maintenance specialty work on or near an adjacent, you know, or cover process, um, these are the responsibilities of the employer. And so the employer in this definition is the person that owns the site. This is my plan. The employer, when selecting a contractor shall obtain and evaluate information regarding the contract employer safety performance and programs. The employer shall inform contract employers of the known potential fire, explosion, or toxic release hazards related to the contractor's work. The employer shall explain to the contract employers the applicable provisions of the emergency action plan. The employer shall develop and implement safe work practices consistent with paragraph F4, which is, um, you know, hot work, things like that, to control the entrance, presence, and exit of contract employers and contract employees in cover process areas. The employer shall periodically evaluate the performance of contract employers in fulfilling their obligations. um, As specified in paragraph H3 of this section, the employer shall maintain a contract employee injury and illness log related to the contractor's work and process areas. So there's another section on what the contract employer has to provide, but I want to dive into that real quick because I think it makes good sense. They're saying, you know, in this first part, shall obtain and evaluate information regarding the contract employer's safety performance. So, you know, that's kind of putting some onus that you're, when you're, you're kind of vetting what kind of contractors you're bringing onto a location, especially a PSM location, you know, are you bringing someone in that has a poor track record of taking care of their employees, things like that, or. Are you bringing people in who seem pretty responsible? You know, that's important, especially when you're on these high, highly hazardous chemicals. Um, and then you have to inform the people coming on what are the known potential fire explosion or toxic release hazards. I don't know about you, but if I'm showing up to a location and they've got, you know, a, a toxic material that if, it, if there's a release, it's immediately dangerous to, to me or lethal, um, you know, I want to know about that. You know, that seems like a pretty good requirement. Um you needed to inform. Yeah, I mean, right. Th- th- thanks
2: for the heads up,
1: right? That's uh, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know. There's a release over there. Is that bad? <laughs> um, you know, so that seems pretty pretty fair. And then the next part about explain to the contractor the provisions of the emergency action plan. Well, yes, absolutely. I've got these. I'm a PSM facility, so somewhere I've got a known potential hazardous, you know, chemical that's got a known fire, explosion, or toxic release hazard. So in that event, what am I going to do? What am I? What am I expected to do during an emergency? So again, seems pretty, pretty standard, safe work practices for the control and, um, the entrance presence and exit of contract employers. So do you have a fence around the area? How do you make sure that people you're controlling who is coming into the process and who is leaving the process? And then, uh, you need to evaluate their safety performance. So, you know, you do this vetting on the front end and all of a sudden that, that, you know, that contractor you've been working with for 10 years lays off, you know, they they lose their upper management, there's a change, or maybe they get rid of their, you know, health and safety program. They don't really have ownership in it. Something changes and now all of a sudden their safety performance drops off. So they're putting on the employer to say, initially you should vet your contractors and then you need to periodically reevaluate and make sure they're still fulfilling their obligations. And then maintain a contract employee injury and illness log. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're protecting your employees and then you don't care about the contractors and all of a you know you have injuries there. So that's the first part um, in regulation. So it's, it's, it's pretty good guidance about expectations at a PSM facility for the employer, the, the, um, the company that owns the facility. And then they put some onus back on or some ownership back on the contract employer. So I, I'm providing the contractors. And so this is my responsibility. I have to assure that each employee I'm providing is trained in the work practices necessary to safely perform his or her job. Um, you know, and, and so maybe I'll dive into that, you know, little piece real quick. So, you know, confined space entry is that you've, I'm sure you have tons of experience with confined space entry, Blaine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, covered some interviews, um, with uh, on that topic on this podcast as well and managed a confined space program at several facilities. But yeah, that's, that's one that's still overlooked. I don't know why, but, um, we still have, we still see issues with confined spaces.
1: Yeah. And so the, 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 the companies that are providing confined space entry, there's a lot of training that goes into that and a lot of requirements, you know? And so there's an expectation that if you're marketing confined space entry as one of your services you do for, you know, companies, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of training that you need to provide, um, to your employees to safely perform that task. And then, The contract employer shall assure that each contract employee is instructed in the known potential fire explosion or toxic release hazards and the applicable provisions of the emergency action plan. So it's putting on the employer saying, hey, you need to let them know about this and they need to know about the emergency action plan. But then they're also putting it on, I'll call it the boss who provided the employees to make sure that's done, you know, kind of a verification. Um, The contract employer shall document that each contract employee has received and understood the training required by this paragraph. So how did you, you know, how do you, it's almost like a competency thing or qualification. Um, How do we need to have records for that? And that's, that's something the employer can verify. Um, The contract employer shall assure that each contract employee follows the safety rules of the facility, including the safe work practices required. And the contract employer shall advise the employer of any unique hazards presented by the contract employer's work or of any hazards found by the contract employer's work. So there's, you know, that's a, you know, I like the unique hazards, you know, maybe you brought them in and they have a special tool they use. Um, that has some hazards or maybe they're you know bringing a crane in you know and there's a different swing radius something like that to your facility so there's there's quite a bit of guidance there um, in the PSM regulation for expectations for the employer and the contract employer and you know so i see i see you know from my experience I see a ton of um, this this makes great sense to me and in your opinion, I mean, in your experience managing contractors, I'm sure, um, is managing contractors
2: easy thing to do? No, absolutely not. It takes diligence and clear communication and coordination between the host employer and the contractors. And I'll even throw, OSHA calls this out as well, I even throw staffing agencies in there uh, for the same reason. But, you know, a couple of things that you mentioned that are interesting, one, if you, if you look at the VPP, the Voluntary Protection Program, OSHA's sort of, um, you know, star level, you know, they go above and beyond the minimum OSHA requirements and they partner with OSHA in the VPP. It, one of the qualifications for that program to enter the, into the VPP is a lot of what you just talked about with respect to contractors. And it's because it's almost like OSHA recognizing that on the 1910 side, you know, there isn't a strong contractor safety, you know, regulation like spelled out like that. So I think they've taken some of the PSM best practices and standards and baked them into their voluntary program, partnership program um, as well. Uh, so I a lot of that sounded familiar to me, the accountability. But when you think about just in general industry, there are some basic things that in my experience – Sites don't consider when they bring a contractor into their facility. One of the big ones, and it's just an example, but different employers have inconsistent policies on when and where to don personal protective equipment. For example, right. So if your facility uh, requires that a vest be worn when you're you're out in a certain area, you know you, you got to keep in mind you're hiring contractors that. They probably don't wear vests every day, and nor do they have one on their truck or their vehicle. And even though you may cover some of this stuff with, you know, the sales uh, person or you know who you co- who you initially reached out to to secure the contract and say, hey, we need uh, this type of work done. Is this something that you all do? Okay, let's send over your paperwork. Uh, we'll check you're done in Brad Street. We'll take make sure you got your certificate of insurance and your workers' comp certificate and. Now, we'll, you know, give us a quote, and you go through all of that stuff, and then you fail to cover some of this basic stuff, like, oh, whoever you send, and keep in mind, some of these contractors, they will hire folks that they've used in the past, whether they're 1099 or direct hires, but sometimes they will staff up for contracts that they get, right? I don't know if you've come across this. Yeah. they will they will hire these folks and they've worked for them in the past, maybe um, they've got their own work truck uh, or will provide the work truck for them. and so they will send them out to your site. and they didn't get any of this information that was covered with the, the contractor at the, sort of at the bid, in the bid process. And then when they were awarded the bid, you know any of the checklists that maybe the safety manager or the project manager at the host employer went, went over with them. It doesn't really trickle down to some of the workers. I've seen them show up with no hard hats, no safety glasses, no vest, for example. Didn't understand that they were going. The work they were going to do was up on a mezzanine, and they would have to remove a, a section of the guardrail to get the piece of equipment up to replace something, do some repair work. So they don't. They don't have harnesses. So just just as something as simple as just consistent policies regarding PPE. And I don't know about you, but I've heard, I don't know how many times I can count. Oh, well, we don't have to do that like normally when we, you know, that must be something that you require. (laughs) No, that's, that's, this is something you have to wear. I don't know if you've got stories about that where they kind of look at you sideways when, when you ask them to don like some PPE, but. So that's, that's sort of what happens in general industry. I feel that's the result of not having clear guidance like we do at PSM. I and mean, that doesn't mean we don't have problems with contractors on the PSM side. So I'll, I'll let you speak to that.
1: Oh, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. This is, you know, it does the information, like you said, you know, I like the way you were talking about, you know, a contract's made, so at a high level, you're agreeing to terms. And then you're going to provide, and if you staff up for a large turnaround or whatever you're providing your contractors for, and then you go get, you know, a bunch of people and they show up, did that trickle down, you know, the important information you can think in the process safety world, you know, they show up and you're like, Hey, we've got, you know, if this material gets out, um, of, you know, from this, this vessel where you're working next to, um, it's an, you know, it can kill you as an inhalation hazard, you know, it's highly toxic. You know, and all of a sudden, the guys that are on the ground are looking there, like kind of like, really, and you're like, (laughs) yeah, you know. So these are, you know, these are the important things you need to um, pay attention to, and I think that's that's probably one of the things in process safety that is sometimes skimmed over and kind of taken care of with like you know an initial orientation. You know, people, you know, a contract employee shows up, they got a group of 10 employees. They're going to go through the initial orientation and it's skimmed over a little bit. Like this is a PSM regulated facility. These are the known hazards. This is the emergency action plan. This is what the horns sound like. If you hear this beacon, here's the muster point. Here's the secondary muster point, you know, pay attention to the wind directions using wind socks and you'll kind of get that little, you know, that, and then sometimes you'll step out into the plant and you realize there's a language barrier with some of those employees that, right. you know, half the employees, you know, their first language isn't, you know, English. And, but your orientation is not English or whatever language it is, but there's a language barrier sometimes. And so there's a verification, you know, I remember when I was certain when we would bring employees in, that was one of the things I would ask because oftentimes they at least had, you know, a supervisor in the group that could kind of get over that language barrier and you could confirm with them right there. Like, do they know about this? And he, you know, that individual would look back at the rest of the group, communicate that, and they'd all nod their heads. And I'm like, okay, I've got some verification that I've done my job, you know, and I didn't blindly turn to a language barrier here. Right. So yeah. there's a, uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a mixed batch of sometimes, you know, it's pretty straightforward people show up, they're qualified. You've worked with them a bunch, you have a regular program. And sometimes it's not as um, straightforward, you know, but I think that's like you said, taking that information and trickling it down to the people that need it, the people who are on site dealing with the hazards.
2: Yeah. And employers need to consider, especially on the general industry side. And I talk to employers like this. I say, okay, your normal new hire orientation, that whole process. Some employers are like, well, you know, that's a three day gig, right? You know, we cover, you know, all the site policies, site rules, we do tours, and then we go back to the classroom. Day two is that we cover these things. I said, yeah. I said, so imagine if I were to tell you that you're going to take a group of employees, you're going to stick them out into your facility, and they are going to be taking apart machines to, you know, and equipment in equipment in the middle of your plant while other operations are going on, and you're going to do the orientation, but you're going to do it in an hour. <laughs> and they just look at you and I'm like, welcome to contractors. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to contractor management. So because that's what you're doing, you, you usually have this one page checklist, right, of the contractor safety briefing. And the bottom uh, paragraph is that legal boilerplate. It says, I hereby, I understand all of the things <laughs> that I need to understand to do work in this facility uh, sign and sign in date. And then you stick them in the middle of your plant and you know, amongst commingling with your employees who got a three to five day orientation process and then retraining monthly safety huddles uh, at the beginning of each shift where you're constantly communicating hazards. And then you, you've got a group of contractors that are going to come in and, and work alongside them for two, three days, tearing stuff apart and putting stuff back together. And you did it in you know 30 minutes or, or whatever. That's that's the uh, comparison I like to give. Now, you've got somebody that's going to work a contractor, four contractors doing some repair work, and you know, are you you know, it's going to take four hours? Are you going to do a three day orientation with them? No, but there are ways to get there. Securing, having preferred contractors, like you said, having establishing long term relationships with a few contractors that are trusted, verified and you you can kind of you know have constant meetings with them periodic meetings with them about the overall performance of their contractors over time having an on-site presence yourself to oversee the work spot check uh, trust but verify type of things but but yeah contractor management on the general industry side i think we we definitely need to tighten that up a bit well you you know so you
1: you led me right into something a, a pretty significant event um, you know, it, it, it actually, to me was the last trigger, um, for the PSM standard, you know, coming into, um, you know, regulation in 92 and being finalized for employees to be hundred percent compliant by 97, um, 1997, um, you know, not 1897, <laughs> I want to make sure, but, uh, you know, so there was a major incident, um, in Pasadena, Texas in 1989. And, you know, everything you just said points directly to one of the main lesson learned, Lessons learned of this event. Um, so there was, you know, for anyone who's interested, uh, ConocoPhillips, Pasadena, Texas, October twenty third, nineteen eighty nine. There was a large explosion, killed some contractors, uh, killed some employees. Um, very big event. Um, you can look, you know, it, you can find it on the internet. You know, I'm put, I'm picking from a book, um, incidents that define process safety from, you know, published in two thousand eight. But the OSHA investigation after this event found that the company in respect to their own and contractor employees did not ensure that proper safety precautions were observed during maintenance operations by enforcing an effect work permit system. And so what you know where, where I lead into exactly what you said at the time of the incident, a lot of concern was voiced over the use of contractors for essential and high hazard maintenance activities. While the use of contractors seen as commercially attractive, employing companies by law always retain accountability and responsibility for the contractor's performance on site. Contractors, supervisors, and employees must be trained to the same level as employees of the employing company perform the same or similar tasks. I mean, that lesson learned is exactly what you just, you know, were speaking to is that you, you put your employees through this, you know, three, four, five, maybe even more day long training, you know, so for a whole week, and then you bring a contractor out there who's going to perform a similar task and you give them that, you know, one hour orientation with a checklist and they sign off, you know. And, and so, this could be the first job they had. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that, and that was one of the and so that's why I think at these why it was so defined was because in the events like this and, you know, the difficulty in managing contractors on your locations and also the difficulties in getting employers to make sure they're verifying the contractors have, you know, the right training, the right level of, you know, qualifications, you know, things like that and are aware of the hazards. Um, it really does point to that and, and adds to what you just said.
2: Yeah. Is there a CSB video on that, by the way?
1: Uh, there is. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. There okay. is a CSB. Well, Kind of. They've gotten better over the years. I
2: remember seeing something on that. Like uh, I don't know because it was it was a while back, so they didn't have. I don't know if they've redone it since with the new CGI. You know, with the computer stuff they do. See the Chemical Safety Board. I know you could speak to this one better oh, yeah. than me, but man, those videos are are incredible. They're a I think it's a great tool to use in training, uh, even though it deals with the Chemical Safety Board and, and PSM sites, but contractors that do work at some of these facilities that deal with confined spaces hot work you you name it i mean those are free training videos basically is the way i look at it on what not to do oh. and uh, and how to how to mitigate those risks so yeah. you want to talk a little bit about csb i know we we didn't have this on the on the plan but you know this is how podcasting goes right we organically sort of meander through the conversation and, and find little nuggets of of good info.
1: Oh yeah. The chemical safety board, um, is a phenomenal organization and like you said, they put out so much good material. So, you know, an independent organization that, um, has, you know, and they're very unique, right? Because they're, they don't, they don't represent industry and they don't re- really represent, you know, I'll call it regulators. They're kind of in between when these events happen, these major incidents, someone, there's a fatality at a site, um, there's a large release that gets off location, uh, maybe requires a shelter in place they are deployed and they go out and they get to the facts they find out what went wrong and they try and educate industry and the public on you know what could have been improved that way industry hopefully learns from their investigation and they put out incredible videos like you said i you would think that i uh, like uh, you know i'm a, like a you know they sponsor me as much as i talk about the csb (laughs) and show videos and training and things like that they do have some material on this event um, and i know recently they just redid the texas city they had a um, great video on the texas city event 2005 and they recently as part of an anniversary re-released um that animation you know they kind of updated it with some you know some better graphics you know a little bit um you know cgi has improved over the years of course and so they do have something I'm very aware of for, um, the, this, this event, in 1989, um, and it does go through some high level stuff and they, they walk through what happened, but I'm not sure if they've redone that recently with a, you know, an animation. Um, but they do have, you know, kind of the date, what happened, the direct impacts, they show some live footage, um, you know, of the fire. Cause I think it, if I'm not mistaken, it, it burned for 10 to 11 hours before they could get it put out, um, in this event. Um, but it was, yeah, there, their CSB is great. Um, I, you know, so anytime you bring that up, I'm, I'm glad to talk about it.
2: <laughs>
1: there you go. Yeah. So I think, you know, let's wrap this up, you know, cause I think we've kind of discussed, you know, what, what isn't said in regulation, what is said in regulation with respect to PSM. And then, you know, kind of a major event that pointed exactly like to, you know, what you see still is kind of a difficulty in keeping contractors and employers, you know, on the same page as, you know, what are the expectations you have your employees, things like that. I think between both of us, it's widely accepted to use contractors. That's not going away. And I, I don't think either one of us expect that, but you have to have an effective management system in place to ensure everyone's safety since you as the employer are ultimately responsible for your site.
2: Yeah. And so for the 1910, for the general industry folks out there, I would uh, point to the recommended practices for safety and health programs that OSHA has, where they talk about communication and coordination for host employers, contractors, and staffing agencies that that I mentioned. And uh, they, they talk about two actions that you need to take, really. It's establish effective communication, right? Establish and implement a procedure to ensure the exchange of information about hazards present on the site. And the hazard control measures are in place. And the second action item is establish effective coordination, which, you know, host employers, contractors and, and other agencies, they coordinate on work planning, scheduling and resolving problem uh, program differences uh, that, that I mentioned, like differences in lockout tagout and the, the look and feel of the equipment that's used and the differences you may have in PPE requirements and to identify and and work out any concerns or conflicts that could impact safety and health. Those two basic actions are spelled out in this guideline and you can, you can actually download this PDF um, and I'll, Wes, I'll I'll provide you the link for that so that, you know, we can include it in the show notes.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Blaine, I think another, another great episode. Um, As always, I appreciate your time on the podcast Um, and and thanks again for
2: um, your time, sir.